Welcome to Building Leaders, everyone, the show about the creative geniuses that are building our world. My name is Angelus Nicolaou. I'm the director at Sector and your host. Also joining me from our team today is Michalos Solomondos, our vice president. We really look forward to this one. Our guest today is Pragash Sangani, and he's by all means a celebrity in the construction technology space. He's the head of digital delivery for JLL and is a co-founder for Safety.ai. Pragash is incredibly passionate and with a singular focus for digitizing the physical world of construction. He shares intimate parts of his story with us, as well as some very practical advice for how to turn your digital visions into reality, which is his competitive advantage. We hope you enjoy it. So if we can get started by introducing your name and the company that you work at and your role there. Hi guys. So I'm Prakash Sangani. Uh, I'm currently working for uh, JLL, John Lang LaSalle, and I'm a head of digital delivery, which is quite a broad, broad term uh, for all things that are related to digital solutions and technology in terms of how we deliver things to our clients, as well as how we internally drive efficiencies in the way that we deliver those services. And you're, uh, we were just talking about this, you're originally from the UK, when did you first, now you're living in Dubai? That's correct, yeah. And, and JLL yeah, is an American company. They are an American company, yeah. And so well, I've been out in the Middle East for seven years now. And initially I joined, uh, I came over through the company I used to work for in, in the UK called Balfour Beatty. They're a contractor. And mm-hmm. then I worked for them for a little while. Then I moved over to Acom, who are another American company. I um, spent three, three and a half years with them. And then it's only recently I moved over to JLL in January of this year. Okay, so it hasn't been too long since you've been away from the UK. When it comes to civil engineering, which was your degree, your background, did you have any influences from your family around you growing up uh, to become a civil engineer? Or was it just something that you know, you came up with by yourself. Yes, I think I was. I, I think I think there's a huge influence from my father. Um, although he wasn't a civil engineer, and, and actually he didn't really have any formal education, um, but he was a mm-hmm. carpenter. He's a self-taught carpenter, and he actually self-taught himself uh, lots of skills around construction. And so I remember wow. growing up, uh, we used to we used to constantly be doing work on our house, all of the renovations. And we built the extension in the back of our house. We put a loft conversion up in the top of our house. And my dad did all the work himself. So it wasn't just the carpentry. He was very passionate about making sure it was done right. And no, nobody could do it better. So he wanted to do everything himself. So he really taught himself how to do plumbing, how to do masonry. And I was basically his laborer, right? I used to help him out. And, and so you I got... With I got him. Uh, Cool. I did, yeah. I, uh, so, me, so, so I used to help him out on the evenings and the weekends, and and uh, so for, I think I think I got a real passion for construction as a whole from him, and a realization that construction is is all about problem solving. Because as well as having the the skills and the knowledge, uh, a lot of what we were doing is is solving issues as we were going along, and and sometimes making things up. And I guess from an academic point of view, I was always very good at maths and I had a real interest in in science, right? Um, Physics in particular. And so if you put all of those things together during the time where we had to decide what 
what university courses and that, that we had to do. I remember going to a careers advisor and they'd, they'd put all of these things in into a computer and out pops civil engineering, right? And if you draw a Venn diagram of all of these things, then civil engineering right. is right in the middle of them. Yeah. That's and right. so it's like um, your Ikigai. guy. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so yeah, so I think that's where my initial passion for construction uh, came from is, is definitely from the influences of my, of my dad and working with him on our home. Awesome. Ethnical background is is Indian. Was your father uh, the one who moved to the UK with the family for the first time, or was he also born there? Uh, no. So both my parents were both born in India. Um, so my wow. father was born. Uh, yeah, my father was born in India, and then he emigrated to Kenya uh, oh, wow. in Africa. And then my mother actually she she was in the UK, um, and they got married, and then my dad moved to the UK to join her. Wow. But yeah, so otherwise I'm I'm of Indian heritage. Yeah. So, so really, really, you know, a self-starter, right? He moves to the UK. He has no family there. You said self-taught carpenter. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's incredible. And, and, I mean, and I guess a lot it's, it's no secret. It's no secret that you're a bit of a celebrity in the construction tech world, <laughs> uh, especially in the Middle East. I think now I start to see where all this grit and determination that usually gets people there comes from. Uh, it's, uh, it's really good. Um, it, it's great. And I see here from your background that, you know, straight out of college, you got a, a job with Balfour Beatty. Obviously, that's one of the, the largest contractors, I would say, in the world and a pretty great company, especially to start your, off your career with. You must have been a great student when you were in college. So, so actually, this is, yeah, so this is, it's, this is a, I, I guess it's a great story, right? So uh, growing up in my in my sort of primary and education, I was this annoying kid that used to do really, really well at school, like without putting much effort in. Uh, so I was quite lazy, and uh, but I used to just get it and I used to do really well. When it came to finishing high school and then going into uh, what we call A-levels in the UK, so that's the bit just before university, before you do your degree, I actually realized I didn't learn how to revise. I didn't learn how to study, right? I didn't know how to do these things. And all of a sudden, right. I wasn't one of the brightest kids in the class. Um, and I really struggled. I, I struggled massively for those two years, the A-levels two years. And I actually flunked my A-levels. So what that meant was that I didn't get into university. Um, oh, wow. And obviously, huge, massive disappointment. And actually, it's one of the. Well, I guess looking back on it now, is one of the out? massively, massively right. <laughs> especially, uh, especially because it was expected, right, that I would continue doing well. And so it was yeah. a huge disappointment. And and that has actually been a huge driver in my life to never feel like that ever again. And I guess I, you talked about some of the grit and the determination. Um, it definitely stems from that moment in my life where I knew that I should have done better. And I got distracted with lots of things outside of sort of uh, what I should, what I felt I should be doing or how I could maximize my potential. Um, and that was a huge sort of turning point in my life. And so what I had to do is then I had to do an additional year and go and do something called a foundation degree, which would then allow me to get onto the degree course that I wanted to do. Oh, and I true. remember vividly that some of the teachers who taught me during this foundation degree, um, and no disrespect to the other people that were that were with me, but they used to just say, like, what are you doing here? Like, there's no reason what it's like basically what <laughs> massive mistake did you make that you had to come and end up doing this course um and, and but what it what it did 
did really help me to do. And I, I don't regret it one bit because what it's given me is a huge, massive determination never to feel like that again. So every time I feel lethargic or lazy about something, I remember that and, and it gives me the drive to, to make sure I do things to the best of my potential and to the best of my ability. And so yeah. what I did was basically for the next four years is just put my head down. I was the first person in the library after every lecture. I was making sure that all of my courseworks and that were, were done as soon as possible and um, but borrowing the books from the library before anybody else got them, that type of stuff. And and also I was lucky to have a really good group of friends through the degree and we were all we were very similar minded. So yeah I, I would like to motivating say each other you mean you know in that sense? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I wasn't the A star student I should have been, but I think yeah. that that part of my life has definitely had a massive influence on the rest of it. Yeah. Do you think that when you entered in a company like Ball for BD, did you see a lot of those A star students that you said the A star student that I should have been? And was that a motivation for you? Or did you somehow feel different than those, you know, people from the very beginning? Um, no. So, so I guess also to put into context, the way I joined Balfour BT wasn't, I guess, the traditional way. And, but I think that this is definitely a, a way that should become more popular. So what, what I did was between my second and third year of my degree, I went out and, and worked for a year between my degree. It's called a sandwich mm-hmm. placement. It's a placement year. It's a gap, like right. a gap year. And I spent a year. Right. So, so. But what I did there was basically become an, an assistant civil engineer, and I, and I and I worked on a on a really big road project. So actually, I came into it quite junior, right? I was there was very little expectation of me. There was very little. Uh, expectation from myself as well, right? To to see what we yeah. could achieve, but it went really, really well. So I guess it really taught me a certain like time management, organizational management, and the big thing for me was I could actually see how I was applying some of the things I was learning in my degree, right? In the in the That's real right. world, and really in, it enforced my sort of passion that this is definitely the right career. This is this is the direction that I want to be heading in, and so so that part of it was unique in the way that I entered into the working world, if you like, and then. It was so successful that Balfour BT then sponsored me for my final two years of the degree. So, so they paid for oh, my wow. the, the rest of my tuition fees and that, and I was wow. guaranteed a job when I graduated. So, it essentially, guaranteed a job when I was graduated, and it, that turned out to be really lucky as well because I graduated in two thousand and nine, which was in the middle of the financial crisis, a bit similar to what was happening now, and a right. lot of my peers who hadn't gone on a placement uh, were struggling to find work because there was just right. nothing happening in the UK economy at the moment. Uh, but okay. I was really lucky that I had this guaranteed job with Balfour BT and so I had employment. And so what that allowed me to do was basically take five months out and then I went traveling around the world. So I went hmm. to visit a few countries. Where did you so go? Went, um, Where did you go traveling? <laughs> so we started off in Los Angeles, uh, went to Fiji, went to New Zealand, uh, both the wow. islands, Australia, Then we did Singapore, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, uh, Nepal, and India. Oh wow! So yeah, so that was a <laughs> um, that was a really good. Five did months. you do that with a, with a group of friends, or was it you know sort of a? I did, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, two of my uh, uni friends and my brother. So my brother's yeah, about 18 months younger than me. So the the four of us basically went out there and, and spent five six months uh, just exploring and traveling the world. And yeah, that was another like fantastic uh, stage of my life. Yeah. What's your fondest memory of that trip? And what would you say taught you going forward? So I think the fondest memory is, uh, is traveling around New Zealand. 
So we hired a camper van and we just drove around all of the island and parked up the, the camper van. And the biggest thing I remember about New Zealand is just the freshness of the air uh, and the, the cleanliness. It just, uh, the way I describe it to people is as soon well, as I you, mean, you lived got, for many, many years in, in London. So, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so it, it, honestly, honestly, it felt like it was the first time that my lungs had felt oxygen when we when we took a breath. Wow, right, wow. You could like, literally feel it. I remember that, and um, but there's there's lo- there's lots of things. I think one of the biggest things is going traveling in that and and being in that environment is that you learn how to s- interact with people who you ordinarily not come in contact with, right? I, I guess mm-hmm. being in London and also being part of a community, you can become quite insular, and you only yeah. talk to and interact with and converse with similar-minded people or similar people who have always lived in the city or who are all from a similar background. But when you go traveling, mm-hmm. It really opens you up to learning about different cultures, talking to other travelers and people from those from those indigenous people from those from those cultures. And so I think that's one huge aspect of, of that of that period which I, I carry through with me now. And, and I have a massive interest in learning about other people's cultures. And, and it really fascinates me, especially finding the similarities. You know, like we could be thousands of miles apart and our histories could be thousands of years apart but there's so many there's so many similarities between people and that's that's something that really fascinates me that's incredible to hear and i would like to ask you did it feel uncomfortable during that time when you decided to you know let's go on this trip let's go on this six-month trip did it feel uncomfortable at all scary at all before you made that decision or was it just full of excitement and you know that youth energy that you know you're filled with and you're like i'm gonna i'm gonna do this you know six-month vacation and then i'm gonna you know work as hard as i can you know when i go back to i think having the safety blanket of knowing i had a job when i came back i think that that took a lot away a lot of the fear and actually just maybe three months or four months before we went traveling, um, I, I won an award. Um, so I was the London Engineer of the Year Award in 20, in, in 2009. And that oh, came wow. with a substantial cash cash reward. And so I oh, also wow. didn't have to worry about knowing it. So I got really lucky, right? <laughs> so I didn't also have to worry about funding the trip to a certain degree. And so from those two aspects, I guess those are two of the potential fears that might be in people's minds at that time. So those two were taken away. So actually, yeah, I was quite blasé about the whole thing. I was, I was really looking forward to it and really excited about going to go go and see the world you know yeah that's um uh, it's great i i love traveling i've never done the you know the six month off kind of thing i think Mihalis yeah. did it yeah. for yeah for a few months for six months uh, after i left google i i went traveling as well and i, I wanted to ask, ask you actually what would uh, you do now as a director of a certain team if people would come and ask you to take a sabbatical take three months off would it be something that you encourage people to do? How do you approach this? Hundred percent. That's the time in your life where you can do it. You have you have very little responsibilities, right? Um, like now, mm. if I were to think about trying to do this now, I'd have to think about what would I do with my children, or, or, or like would my wife come along, and, and what about the bills? And like, but at that time in your life, <laughs> you're, you're you're in this sort of flux between getting lots of responsibility and having none, right? And I think that so that's a great period of your life to do it, and perhaps it's probably one of the very few periods you can do it without having to have all of these other thoughts. So 100%, if you have the opportunity and the means to go and travel and see the world and explore other cultures and learn about the way of life from in different parts of the world, I would, I would absolutely encourage people to do that. That's great. 
So you went back, you got the job with Balfour Beatty that was in the UK. And then we saw a little gap in your career, I guess. You worked at Flint and Neal, which is a, a consulting company, right? So you left from the GC. What was uh, what happened there? And then and then I think you went back to Balfour Beatty. I didn't actually leave. I was part of a, a route to become a chartered a member of the Institute of Civil Engineers. They encourage you to have a whole rounded experience. So if you're from a mm-hmm. contractor, then they encourage you to go and do some design work. And if you're from a designer, then they encourage you to go and do some contracting work, right? So oh, you cool. get to see both sides of the coin, if you if it were. Um, and so what Balfour Beatty had was a very robust graduate program where in order to help you navigate this route towards chartership, they had a sort of an exchange program right with mm-hmm. other consultancy firms and Flint and Neil right. was one of those so for a period of time uh, what happened was somebody from Flint and Neil came and worked for Balfour BT and for that same period I went and worked for Flint and Neil and so there was mm-hmm. no uh, so I was still employed by Balfour BT I was getting paid by Balfour BT and because oh, they did cool. that there was no need to sort of exchange money or anything like that but during mm-hmm. that period I got an in-depth experience into how a design practice worked and how practically, and so Flint and Neil were one of the premier sort of bridge designers uh, yeah. at the time. And, and so I got to work uh, with uh, designers, helping them do drafting, doing design calculations and doing design checks, third-party checks and things like that. So so that would help me get a rounded, much more rounded view of how designs are put together, some of the things that go into a design. Because as a contractor, you usually sit there complaining about the design being That's rubbish all the right. time and how... And, and you never understand them. You don't, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are these guys doing? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so how, how, why, would, why would they have done something like this? But, but I guess, yeah, working on that side of things, you get a real appreciation of some of the time pressures that they're under, some of, some of the vagueness in terms of the, the scopes that they get given and things like that. Uh, and so, so that's that part of my career. That's really cool. It's really cool that they do that. And, you know, you get to understand all of the aspects of engineering. And it looks like, that's when your career started taking a change, right? Because after that, you switch from an engineer in a title wise to an analyst. What does an analyst mean, you know, in your, in your position? <laughs> so, so if I'm really honest, I think that the analyst title was, um, it was given to me just as a catch-all. It didn't mean anything, right? It means, it means everything and nothing. I think uh, it's, it's one of these things where when they couldn't figure out what to call it, they just, they called me an analyst. But the, the next stage of, of my career there was really interesting. And, and again, another piece of luck. So one of the projects I worked on prior to going into this design house, I was on Heathrow Airport. Um, it was, at the time, yeah. it was the largest airside construction in Europe, I believe. And mm. so huge logistical challenges. But it's one of these projects, um, I guess one of these sort of seminal projects that everybody has. It's the one where you had a team and everybody clicked together and there was such a brilliant mix of people of old and young and enthusiasm and things like that. And I still haven't come across a team just like that one. And there I met a few of my mentors who I still actually keep in touch with now, such is the strength of those mentors. And one of those mentors, he was actually leading a change management program within Balfour BT. So like many more uh, sort of multinational organizations over the years, they'd acquired multiple businesses, right? And never really integrated them very well. And so, so this mentor of mine, he'd been basically asked to take charge of this and integrate six similar businesses into one and then look at how to streamline operations. So like strip away some of the head offices and things like that. And so they were looking for graduates to come and be part of this program for, for two reasons. One, 
to give them exposure to the wider beast, if you like, to the to the bigger organization, but also to get stuff done cheaply, I guess, right? Because uh, we were we were young and, and relatively right. uh, low well, down on sense. the pace. You know, if you, you can't yeah. really make it, a change like that, you know, and make it be super expensive. Otherwise, you're defeating the purpose of you know, exactly. streamlining exactly. operations. <laughs> yeah. And so that was really actually fantastic because again, like you mentioned, it was it was a real departure from engineering. It was it was a complete departure from anything that I'd done education-wise and anything that I'd done. But it was massively eye-opening for me. Um, one is I got to understand the importance of process, right? About how process and governance actually is the heartbeat of how an organization works. It's it's actually how uh, business models are. What what uh, is what business models are based upon is how you actually generate money. It's how you manage people and all of those things and so it was really eye-opening from that point of view but also because physically it was located in Balfour Beatty's global head office it also meant that I was bumping into very very senior people and important people so it really helped with my exposure and networking and and things like that and and then yeah there's a whole bunch of other sort of skills that were developed during that time and the contacts that I made really sort of set me on the path to where I am right now right but bumping into them, but I'm sure that you must have had, you know, your eyes open to speaking with them, uh, engaging with them, because it's one thing to bump into someone, but, you know, when you see that it's starting to make a change in their career, it means that, you know, you actually purposely engaged. Is that something that you looked out for that you really wanted? I, definitely. So I guess this is another element where I can remember a change in the way I approach things was uh, up until then, I guess yeah, I was quite intimidated with talking to some of these senior people, you know, you build them up, you build up this image of, of some of these senior leaders and you think, oh, they're not going to have time for me. And what would I say to them? I'm just somebody, somebody tiny and that. And what I realized is that they're just normal human beings, right? They're just, they're people and you can talk to them like people. And that's something that I learned during that period is that, that these people are really approachable. Uh, Yes, they're busy. And yes, they're doing things that are, they're making decisions that are way above my pay grade and things like that. But they're, most of them are really happy to talk and very, and especially happy to talk to the younger generation and, and give them advice or point them in the right direction. So yes, yeah, so there was a few people who I knew of um, where I would maybe purposely uh, hang around the lift for a little bit just to see if they would come and then get in the lift with them <laughs> and things like that, you know, just, just so that I could make sure I have some interaction with them. <laughs> did you prepare questions for them? How did you approach them? No, no uh, I, I would love to tell you that I did have a strategy and that I was well prepared, but I, but, I, but I wasn't. No, yeah, most most of it was I would start the conversation about talking about what we'd be working on in, on this change management program, and a lot of these guys weren't directly involved, so they were really interested, right? So it's almost like getting an insider view into what was happening because they get presented a management report once a week or once a month or something like that, but they don't really know what's happening on a day to day basis. So there was sometimes that conversation started from from that. Um, sometimes it was really mundane about the weather, right? British people love talking about the weather, so so you start a conversation <laughs> about the weather. Um, I didn't know that, yeah, to be I, honest with you. <laughs> That's kind of funny. <laughs> um, yeah, so there was never really a set plan or a set of topics that I wanted to discuss, but always, always ended up being fascinating. And if I did want to have like a formal conversation about or get some career advice or something like that, I would typically email them in advance and then and then we'll set up a, a coffee. Um, oh, and, cool. and that's something that, that I did quite often. Is that something that you do now that you're a director? Are you open to, is your door, you know, one of those directors that, you know, my door is always open, feel free to come in. 
hundred percent. Yeah, I'm I'm very much of the school that it was done for me. I was given that opportunity, and it really helped me. So I'm I'm happy to then do that for others. I think mm. things have changed massively, right? So social media, things like LinkedIn, and that weren't weren't a thing when I was coming through the early parts of my career. And so I actually get a lot of people contacting me through LinkedIn, asking for advice and and things like that. And so I do quite a lot of virtual mentoring, if that makes sense, and yeah, giving people yeah, career yeah. advice through other mediums like WhatsApp and LinkedIn and things like that but yeah even through the teams that I have I I do make a point uh, or I try to encourage people to come and speak to me about where they'd like to go what they'd like to do are they happy doing what they're doing and things like that it seems that the younger kids have it easy now they don't no longer have to wait around the elevator to speak to you they can <laughs> you know find your LinkedIn or send your whatsapp or <laughs> that's true that's true yeah <laughs> And is that when, you know, after a few months as an analyst there, sounds like you got some insight into the business world, right? Into the business aspect of, of things. Is that right? That's, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. So, so I, I really learned how it's so, so the whole business is about how to make money, right? And in, in construction, um, I guess up until that point, I never really realized it, right? For me, it was all about delivering project. Like how, how do you build this? How do you make sure it's safe? How do you ensure it's quality? And that I never really thought about how do you make this profitable, right? Or how do efficiencies in this relate to uh, efficiencies in your bottom line, for example. And I guess some of the things that I did during this period um, really opened my eyes to how Balfour Beatty was actually making money, right? And, and mm. some of the things that they were doing, how those would help it to make more money or to be more efficient. Um, so yeah, definitely learn a lot more about the business side of things and less so about the, the technical or engineering side of things. That's right. It really opens your eyes to a whole different world. In my past job, you know, having an, an employer, uh, you know, you do a lot of things out of habit, maybe because other people do it and you don't really think about stuff. And then when you're involved with, with the business aspect of things or, you know, when you, when you start your own business, then all of a sudden you realize maybe how wasteful you were or you yeah. start seeing things differently. Uh, but Pragash, is that where, was that a decision point for you that I want to go in this managerial role more than stick with the typical engineering design role? Or is that something that you were after from the very beginning uh, of your career? Uh, no. And, and I actually, even at that point, I didn't make the decision to whether to mm. go down either route. So from straight after graduating, I sort of, in my mind, I had a path, right? That, that I would become a site engineer, then a site agent. And there were these roles within Balfabiti, which, which almost had like a career map. And eventually I wanted to lead a, a large project and deliver a large complex project somewhere around the world. And I guess I never envisaged going down the non-technical route, right? When uh, Even up until that point, uh, this opportunity came up and I suppose I did antagonize a little bit about it, about whether the fact that I am diverting a little bit from this path that I had in my mind where uh, I would yeah. do certain steps and, and get to a certain thing. But again, uh, through sort of talking to my mentor and getting advice from a few people, this was a win-win, right? This was a minor detour. I could always go back to this and right. the yeah. things that I would learn from here would be massively valuable for where I wanted to get to in the future. Um, what actually ended up happening was through some of the skills that I picked up, like I mentioned in about um, understanding process and understanding those, an opportunity came up for me to go to India and do a, a short secondment. And there we were basically setting up a new branch of Balfamiti. So Balfamiti never weren't doing any work in India. And so they wanted somebody to go over there and help them 
use some of the experience that I picked up in rationalizing processes between the six businesses, pick that up and help them set up the processes for the Indian business. And it started off as a short-term secondment. I think it was supposed to be two months. Uh, I ended up being there for six and met some fantastic people. And uh, one of the people there had who had just sort of inherited a restructured region within the Balfour BT world. And that included, it used to be called GCCII. So it was the GCC uh, countries, India and Indonesia. So geographically, oh, cool. Balfour BT mapped that. Awesome. And, he, and this guy that I was interacting with quite a lot because he was he was in India quite a lot because they were setting the business up, um, really got to uh, to see and understand what I was doing. And, and he basically offered me a job to say, look, like, do you want to stay? I want to really keep you in the region. Like, don't go back and you can give me a choice. Uh, he goes, you can, and it was the three Ds. He says, you can live, live in Delhi, uh, Dubai or Doha. You, it's, it's your pick. <laughs> <laughs> the three Ds. Uh, I love that. And, and actually from a family holiday many, many years back, I'd come to Dubai and, and saw all the cranes, right? One of the thing, biggest things that stood out when I came, I think it must have been like maybe 99 or 2000, as early as then uh, when, I, when I came on a family holiday. I remember thinking that this is like the Hollywood of construction, right? This is, this is where yeah. the biggest, the deepest, the fastest, the tallest the things, things are. And, and it would be fantastic to one day come and, come and work here. And so, but I never, I never actively... Uh, sought this right it was always something that that was in the back of my mind and so when I got given the opportunity to say okay you can come and work in Dubai I it was basically without much thinking right I was I, yeah, I guess jumped on it. The, uh, yeah I, it was I was really blase obviously I had to convince my wife I was newly married at the time oh wow so, uh, <laughs> so I had to convince my wife to say we want to pack up our things and move and and actually we just spent a considerable amount of money refurbishing a home yeah, we bought we bought a home and then we refurbished it. So before I went to India, and no, I, and no Airbnb at the time, or Airbnb <laughs> no was just starting. <laughs> um, I, yeah, yeah, I guess it, I guess it was yeah. Um, but again, this was uh, this was something she through through my experiences working with my dad. I'd done a lot of the work in the house with, with my with by oh, myself. Okay, me, me, like you, me and my father in law. Like yeah. And so, so I, I put a lot of my heart and soul into the house, you know, there's lots of, yeah. lots of, lots of cut fingers and, and everything like literally my blood and sweat and tears were in, were baked into this, right. into this house. And to this day, I've only lived in it for one month. I never Not lived in kidding. the house. No, no. So, Is it so on Airbnb now? No, so it's, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's it's on rent, um, but not not okay. not on Airbnb. <laughs> so so that was wow. something. So yeah, so we, I convinced I convinced my wife that that this is a huge opportunity. Um, and, and actually, at the time, I remember thinking and and having this conversation with my wife that that actually this isn't the opportunity, but this is the one that's going to be leading to the opportunity. Right? Like, I genuinely had that feeling at the time, and and luckily, that's what that's what's transpired. But um, I don't know what it was. I don't know. What, I know I might sound prophetic and. And it might sound like like I'm saying this from sort of with the foresight of having actually having done it, but I genuinely remember feeling at the time and and having this conversation with my wife saying that this is the one that's going to get us to where we want to get to, you know, where what we want to do in life or what we want to achieve. And so yeah, so so I initially came out here by myself, and then my wife was was wrapping up her her work, and um and she was she was, so she had a few things to do, so she joined me a couple of months later, and we initially said okay, we'll give it a go, see how it lasts, and see how we go for about two years, and uh, and yeah. we haven't really looked back since. That's incredible. You know, I grew up in the Middle East. I, I was an expat. You know, I lived there for fifteen years. I, I totally feel you when it comes to. The, the opportunity feeling. Growing up, I remember, you know, my parents talking about that and, you know, let's relocate here and relocate there. And 
that's what ended up happening. And, and yeah. um, it's a great feeling. And I guess I'm, I'm forever grateful to that region for that because, yeah, the kinds of projects that exist there, the energy that exists there, it's second to none. And, and the opportunities come along, but you have to look for them. And to yeah. me, it sounds like you're, you're someone who always looks for it. You know, it's, it, you know, you don't tell your wife, you know, let's move to Dubai. And this is not the opportunity, but the great opportunity is coming, even though I have, you know, <laughs> a few more years or months or whatever it is of, you know, just doing what I'm doing. But yeah. is that when, you know, I see here, you know, after India, you went to Dubai and you are now a business system. So no longer just analyst. Now analysts got a focus. So now you're a business systems analyst, and then you became a BIM systems manager. So is that when the construction tech movement inside you start to happen? So, so I guess what we haven't talked about is where I first sort of had an interaction with construction technology. And that mm-hmm. actually happened during a summer placement during my degree. So I mentioned that I took a year out and did yeah. a year's worth of work for Balfour Beatty. Um, and as part of that whole thing, they offered me a summer placement in between the next year and my master's year. And so there I mm-hmm. went and worked on the London Olympics. So Balfour Beatty had some work on doing, doing some infrastructure work on the London Olympics. And one of my sort of mentors there, he had come across this thing called building information modeling. And it, it was it was at the time just coming out of research. It was coming out of universities and, and right. people yeah. were theorizing about it. And so what he must have seen at a conference or something. And so what he wanted to do was to explore what the benefits of that would be to Balfour And he basically put me in charge of saying, okay, here's this thing go and research it, go and do it. And during this 12-week period that you're with us, um, by the end of it, we, I'll set up a presentation to senior people within the business and you can present to them what you think that the potential benefits of, of building information modeling are going to be for Balfour Beatty. And so I remember then I, I taught myself how to model in 3D. And at the time I used um, Autodesk architecture, uh, AutoCAD architecture. And yeah, I, yeah. Uh, we, I, I modeled up a, uh, one of the bridges that, that they were building as well as at that time, like 4D was really in its infancy as well. And so I, I used the very first version of a software program called Synchro to link that yeah. 4D model to a construction ben- program. Bentley and Synchro, right? Uh, Bentley's just recently bought it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, at the time, it was an independent software program. And, and, and I was able to, in 3D, visualize how this bridge was going to be built. And you've got to remember, this mm. is what, 12 years ago. And so at the time, yeah. this was something that was like quite, quite revolutionary and, and almost mind blowing, right. To, to some of these guys. And yeah. so, so that was, that was fantastic. But ever since then, um, and, and seeing, seeing the reaction on people's faces, right. When I saw that, that's something that really stuck with me that how the power of technology or the power of digital tools can have a very human impact, right? Is you see this this almost awe and wonder on people's faces when you show them how this thing can be applied to something that they do every single day and makes a huge difference. And and that that's a real driver for what I do even right now, right? So I I love the reaction on people's faces when um, I, I show them a piece of tech or some some software or something like that, and you see the look on their faces like that is that initial astonishment, right? That is that yeah. whoa, yeah. And so that, it's like that's like magic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly like magic, and that's still something that drives me now. Um, so so that was where I first sort of piqued my interest in BIM, and that and I kept it, I kept up this interest. But at the time, the focus was on this career path and that. So it, so all of these technologies and innovation and all of that was was a hobby, right? It was a side. It was something that I was doing right. uh, in my in my spare time and trying to get traction with it. 
in every stage of my job or in every stage of my career through every role. And here, all of a sudden, it was now starting to become my full-time job to look at technology, to look at how this technology can be applied into the way things are done and, and the processes and that. And so that so that business systems role and, and the BIM coordination roles and that were now, instead of me having to try and find time to do it as well as do my day job, it was starting to become my day job. Was that out of your own initiative, looking into, into these systems? And I see a lot of similarities here. That's sort of how it happened for me. You know, I started using some tech, then I started, uh, I was a client rep at the time when I started using first exposed to construction tech. And I remember, you know, when we told the, the consultants and the general contractor that, you know, you have to use these technologies now to do your work. And then it sort of became my thing because I was the one that, you know, introduced them to it. So everyone came to me to ask questions <laughs> and yeah, then I decided yeah, to yeah. do it full time. Is that sort of how, how it happened or? Exactly, exactly that. Right. Yeah. So because I had such an interest in this and I was constantly bringing these things up and that, and when you get one or two people who actually see the same benefits or the same vision as, as you do, all of a sudden you become the go-to person for these things. And uh, so, so, so these, the, the senior person that I, that, that I spoke about who, who is in charge of the whole GCCII region, he definitely saw um, the, the potential impact of technology on what we were doing. And right. uh, he never really had anybody who could articulate uh, what that would, what that actually meant. Right. And, and I've, I've always been lucky. I think that I'm able to, to articulate these things and to be able to try and I've been able to speak to some of the guys that are working on sites as well as people who are sitting in a boardroom. Right. And I think that I've best definitely been lucky to have been able to do that. And so he definitely leveraged that ability to be able to find and spot how some of these technologies can be used practically on site, but then also articulate the benefits of that to, to the senior leadership, to the, the people that are actually going to be paying for this thing and, and are interested in things like ROI and, and all of this stuff. Yeah. I see where the connection happens here. You know, you're working a general contractor. Um, all this makes sense. And then after that, though, your path with the consultant starts, right? So the WSPs, ACOMs, and so on. Yeah. We sort of see that either consultants are, well, consultants are for a fact, uh, I think as far as we know, I think we both agree here that, you know, consultants are definitely the most forward thinking out of the bunch, right? They're the ones that, you know, let's innovate, let's, you know, but when it comes to the implementation, a lot of the times the consultants don't have a say on what gets implemented on a project. You know, you might be promoting something, you might be thinking of something, but you're no longer in that, you know, super strong position that you were at Balfour Beatty or, you know, your general contractor to say, okay, that's it. You know, now we start using it. Then you get your crew to use it. Then you see wide implementation. Do you ever find that frustrating working in the consulting company or do you sort of, you know, find the niche within the company that's open to using it and, and then you sort of go there and, uh, and get it done. So I think that there's different problems to solve, right? I, I think mm -hmm. that consultants have got their frustrations and issues that they want to solve and contractors have got, have got theirs. And actually, actually at the time for all those early parts of my career, trying to get the contractors to, or the contractors I was working for to adopt technology was very difficult because their margins are so small, right? They operate on right. such fine 
such fine margins that there's there was very there was a huge resistance to do anything to do anything different, and that's changed now. And I guess we'll talk about that in a second. I think I think that that attitude's changed, especially here in the Middle East over the last maybe eighteen months or so. Um, but in the in the consultants, I think that you're right. There was a much more openness to doing things slightly differently and innovatively. But there again, there were there were challenges, right? I think that especially here in the Middle East, some of the consulting has become quite commoditized, and so there is there. Right. A, a race to the bottom in terms of pricing and that and so so margins become tight and so there isn't really scope to do stuff differently and what happened so, sort of uh, during the course of of my career is that that commoditization of the consulting industry actually then flipped on its head and then actually uh, people were starting to see that going digital was a differentiator it was a way of saying that I'm different to this guy I bring added value because I do things more efficiently, I do things more digitally, they, and they, they're going to give you X, Y, and Z. And so towards the sort of latter years of, of my time at ACOM, that was definitely the sort of mantra that we were, or the, or the focus and the ethos that we were working towards is that we were going to be digitally different. And, and we were, so we were, we were constantly looking at um, ways that, and, and similar to what I'm doing now, but, but ways that we can use technology, not just because we're just to say that we're using technology, but to make sure that it's helping us do th- our internal things efficiently so that we can operate at some of the margins that we're being asked to operate at, but also to bring new service lines that bring value to the clients, right? So things yeah. like exploring things like 3D printing and using drones for surveys and things like that. So all of, all of this type of stuff. How do you convince on a project with a large general contractor or maybe an, a disengaged owner? Because that happens too sometimes. You know, there's, there are owners that say, you know, digitization is the contractor's problem. Uh, you know, you're a consultant. You want to, you know, you obviously want to digitize. What do you do in that case? Do you, go to, do you go to the GC and try to make, you know, become friends with them and befriend them and... and <laughs> You know, so, have so a dinner some, some with them it. and be like, "Hey, you know, let's uh, let's digitize this thing." And, um, <laughs> how do you handle so, that? So I guess some of it, some of it is like that. So it's not as as extreme as yet as as uh, <laughs> as going to go going to the house and having dinner with them and trying to convince them. But um, uh, some of it is, I guess coming from a contracting, I can speak the contractor's language, right? And so I can have instant credibility with some of the guys I'm working with and say, look, I know what it's like for you. I've been where you are. I know some of the struggles that that come up. So let's take BIM for an example, right? Um, so building information modeling, it's been around for a long time, right? Like I mentioned, I have had interactions with it for the last 12 years. Um, right. And it's only maybe, especially here in the Middle East, maybe the last two years or so where we've seen the traction now, right? Where now I'm instead of me having to convince clients that BIM's the right thing to do, it's now me trying to make the, the the client understand this is what BIM means and this is what you should expect because this is what's what's available in the market. It's no longer you should do BIM. It's that this is what you should do with BIM, right? So there's a right. there's a subtle right. there's a subtle right. difference there, and the contractors have been have been really key in this shift. I think so. Whereas in the beginning, I think there was a huge focus on utilizing BIM for design and using it for things like uh, clash detection and, and design production and improving the quality. There's now a huge focus on utilizing these models for operating an asset. And then contractors are also starting to see the benefit of utilizing quality models for getting good quantities out of it, for managing the logistics and planning and making sure that, that they're building things that, uh, that are meeting the design intent. And so... Those conversations, if I'm really and brutally honest, have become much, much easier, especially over the over, like I mentioned, the last 18 months to, to two years. 
a lot of the contractors now are seeing themselves or trying to put them place themselves in a in a position where they bring value through their digital offerings whether that means that they can deliver this their asset safely more safely um improve the quality of it or even just surety right say so, say so if i'm going to deliver something in 2 years i'm going to use technology to make sure that it's delivered in 2 years that's a real trend that i'm starting to see and so i find myself actually most of the time pushing out an open door uh, with a, with a lot of this what with a lot of this thing and that is a stark change to when i first started there was a lot of resistance from uh, but the resistance was more from from the asset owners like you mentioned rather the the client body the people who are paying for this ultimately than than the contractors themselves if the client said that they wanted something would, that would typically mean that they're willing to pay for it and so then the contractors would do it if they're getting paid for it they'll do it yeah it's funny because i'm imagining you know people you know you leaving the room 12 years ago like you said when you started with bim you're leaving the room and you're talking about bim and and they would say you know who's this prakash guy and what is he talking about bim and you know what is this crazy stuff and now it's like oh yes prakash you know he's the expert he knows about bim you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you want to implement bim if you want to talk about digital delivery talk to prakash he's your guy yeah quite a quite the stark difference so and i guess it shows how you know perseverance and never giving up on a goal there really starts to pay off um if you would say you know looking at you know being with the contractors being with the consultants if they could focus on one thing when it comes to bim to ensure that bim becomes successful for them what would you say is the one thing that they should be focusing on is it the scheduling aspect is it the basics is it design is it cost monitoring through bim what would you say is the very first thing is the number one thing they should focus on is so okay it's a really difficult question i i think yeah because it's a big mountain right you, you say you say bim you say yeah. you say bim and they freak out <laughs> so so i think i think it's it's i don't think that there's one answer to this i think it's different for where you are on in the construction life cycle right so if you're a designer if you're an engineer i think that the big focus is on how i can make the production of my design information efficient make sure that it's quality and it represents the design intent that I that I want to be built. If you're a contractor, it's how can I make sure that I use BIM to efficiently deliver this design whether that be with cost or time or, and quality. Um and if you're the asset owner, your I think that your pure focus should be how I can make sure that the designers and the contractors produce me a model which I then I can use to operate the asset. And for me that's the next evolution of BIM and and actually arguably where we're going to get the most value out of BIM because we operate assets for 50 to 100 years right we build them for only two or three we design them for one or two and so the making sure that the bim models work for us during the operation of our assets is going to give you the biggest value um mm-hmm. in both, both monetarily and and in terms of in terms of time mm-hmm. i think that part we're going to cut off and we're going to put it you know post it somewhere because i think it's a uh, some great feedback there uh, you know you you went to acom and you worked there for quite a bit and you know for a while at least your name was synonymous with acom you know i think that's when we first started hearing about you yeah. how was the experience there what was what, what happened there what do you think uh, gave you the spotlight you know while you were there and people got to know you so well was it the projects you worked on or 
I, I don't know. So, so it, it's, I would, uh, again, I would love to tell you that it was by design. I would love to tell you that I, I chose to go to Acom because I wanted to enhance my brand and I wanted to do this, but it, 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 absolutely, <laughs> it absolutely wasn't. I guess I was just doing my thing, right? Um, and uh, I think the first thing I got was, was I got asked to um, or write an op-ed op- for mm-hmm. digital. I think it was uh, someone said, or like, there's, uh, we've been approached by this magazine and, and they, they want us to write an article um, about it. And you seem to have some opinions on this. Yeah, I've got quite a loud mouth. And so they said, oh, like, do you want to write something? <laughs> so I said, oh, yeah, that'd be interesting. Let me give it a go. Um, and so, <laughs> so I did that and, uh, and it got published. And then I think that, so that's what really started to snowball. I think some people read that and then I got approached to to write another article and then there was yeah. an interview and then then I did a WebEx with Aconex and then all of a sudden it was like it snowballed and then, so I was getting asked to go and, and talk at conferences I was getting asked to uh, come and moderate panels and be part of panels um, and every now and again I was getting asked to write stuff but it's absolutely not lost upon me that that if it hadn't been for the might of Acom's brand, the biggest construction consultant in the world, right? That yeah. people probably wouldn't know who I am and wouldn't be interested in, in me. And so, so I think, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very thankful for that period of uh, my career working for Acom. And definitely, um, I think it worked both ways, right? Because I remember one of the things I really noticed when I first started working for Acom is how the market didn't perceive them to be innovators, right? The, the clients didn't perceive Acom to be innovative. And, and that was actually borne out in some of the customer surveys that we were coming. We were constantly scoring quite low. So we would, we would score quite highly on some of the technical, the technical sort right. of parts of the survey. The technical when, abilities. Yeah, yeah. When the question came about as, as like, do you see Acom as uh, industry leading or, or in, innovative? It used to be mediocre, right? We used to like get threes and yeah. fours out of, t- out of 10. And one, one of the things towards the end when I left, I remember is that there was a distinct change in, in that perception of us. And I think some of this, some of this stuff that we were doing, uh, some of this sort of outwardly facing sort of telling people about the innovative things that we were doing internally, because there was lots of lots of fantastic stuff happening we just weren't telling people about it and i think that's also important right the the perception that you're innovative or making sure that you tell people of the things that you're doing is really important not only because it might help them on their journeys but also to basically help your internal teams to know and feel and feel validated with what they're doing Mm -hmm. I think that the other big lesson here as well is, well, number one, talk about the stuff that you do because civil engineers in general are boxy people, let's say, you know, they're uh, comfortable in their technical world and, you know, it's great there and, you know, they talk amongst themselves, but the customers necessarily don't necessarily know what they're up to. And it's important for the perception of the company. It's also important for the perception of of the construction industry. I remember in, in our very first podcast, Costanzo, Graffi uh, of Acom, the highway sector lead, he uh, said to us, you know, one, one of his dreams is to to see the construction industry finally start to have a good rep for itself. So I think it's really cool. And we see that happening quite a bit now. And number yep. two is also listen to your customers, you know, have an eye open out there. You know, the, these surveys that, you know, go around, you know, they're not just for fun. They're not just, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to steal customer data or well, hopefully they're not at all for that. Uh, but listen to what the people have to say. And I think right now this has changed quite a bit for Acom. Uh, Acom now seems to be at least perceived at the forefront of the innovation side. 
Definitely, yeah. And, and there's fantastic stuff happening there, right? Especially here in the region, they're definitely uh, one of the leaders in BIM in all aspects, in, in the back-end processes of it, in the, the outputs that are coming out from it, in the thought leadership that goes into it. They, they work really, really closely. I, I, I was personally working really closely with the software vendors as well to drive improvement in what's happening from that perspective. Right. So definitely, definitely, I, I think that there's that, that. And and look, and I'm not saying that that's... Uh, because uh, it was because of me or because I was there. I think that that was a journey that was already started. And I'm, I'm really just thankful that I was able to be part of that journey. You know, I think, mm. I think that I, we both benefited. It was a symbiotic relationship. We both benefited from, from this journey. It's, it's the only way, right? It's the only way that yes, that, that definitely. works. And then you left ACOM. You started a, a new career this year, just before COVID. Well, I guess COVID was already you know, raging in half of the world, but, you know, <laughs> just before the COVID lockdown started happening in our region, I would say, and you went, I guess, you know, getting a, a job offer to be the head of digital delivery for such a large organization like JLL is a, is a hard offer to turn down. But can you tell us a little bit how, how that came about and, you know, your current yeah. role and what your responsibilities are now? Yeah, so I think there was a number of drivers and some of them were sort of um, on, on a personal level rather than a career level. Um, yeah. So I was spending uh, an inordinate amount of time away from my family traveling um, just because of the nature of the work that we were doing at ACOM. And, yeah. and so that was something that I had made a conscious decision about trying to, uh, to address and change, right? I've got a young family and I wanted to spend as much time as I possibly could with them within yeah. reason. Um, and then coincidentally at the same time, um, yeah, so JLL uh, sort of approached me and um, what really struck me about JLL is one, it's a fairly new division, right? The part of JLL that I'm working for at the moment is only about five or six years old in terms of its project and development services, the, the bit that, that's essentially the project management consulting or the program management office business line. And they were full of young people, which is rare for this region, right? Usually yeah. you, this, this type of organizations, have, I, I won't say they have, they have a good mix, but they tend to be on the more experienced side, right? And something that's a stark difference with JLL is that they are full of, of young, energetic, enthusiastic people. And you could argue that that means that there's, that there's a lack of experience in that and there might be some truth in that. But I think that this enthusiasm and this, uh, this agility that's in the team more than makes up right. for any perceived lack of experience. And so right. that brings with it a different mindset, right? So what I felt at the time and what I've seen since is that there's a very entrepreneurial spirit within the team. Everyone mm -hmm. is looking at how they can do through things differently. Everyone's challenging the status quo. Like there's very little people saying, okay, we did it like that on the last jobs. Let's do it exactly the same over here. Everyone's like, okay, yeah. we did it like that before. Let's see how we can do it better here. What can we do differently? Nice. What's going to mean that by the time we finish this project, the client's going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I was right to pick JLL, you know? And so that, yeah. and honestly, that is ingrained in, within the business ethos. That's so interesting to hear. There's a book I very often refer to. It's uh, called Good to Great. And one of the things that they talk about is get the focus on, on getting the team together first and then worry about the product that you're going to build or the thing that you're going yeah. to execute. And it yeah. sounds like that's what's happening there. And, and congrats. I guess it's a, it's a good role. And yes, coincidentally, COVID also happened. So you got to spend all the time with your, <laughs> with your family that you wish. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I and and yeah, it's it's fortunate because I could have ended up being in Saudi Arabia with this this whole the last four or five months. So, and I think I've mentioned this a lot of times. I keep mentioning that I've been lucky, and this is another element where I feel very, very fortunate and very lucky that I was here. And it's a huge dy- dynamic. I don't think my wife will completely agree that that it's been good me spending all this time, but my kids definitely do. My, <laughs> I think that they that they're really happy. We feel you. We feel you. <laughs> um, and you also co-founded at the same time that you started at JLL uh, Safety uh, with an AI uh, name. Is that is that something that you had in mind for a while? And you know, how did that come about? Yeah, this is something that uh, I, I guess for many, many years, not just my time through Acom, but even when I was at Balfour BE, there's always this this feeling that, uh, I don't know if some of it's ego, but it's that feeling that I can do it better, right? There's like in, in right. certain different different elements that, that yeah, if, if I were to write this software program, then it'll be like this and this and it'll be much better than what's there. And right, um, right. I guess over the years, um, especially starting life of as a contractor safety is something that's completely ingrained in with me right it, the importance of safety on our projects and and it's something that really really resonates with me um there's obviously been times where i've been on sites and there's been incidents or accidents and there'd be two people that i've known and they personally affect you and so that's been a huge yeah. passion of mine and so i've always sought to see how the other passion in terms of technology and uh, digital tools and that can be used to make safety better. And I think it's, it's actually right. one of the areas that's quite neglected, right? In the whole digital transformation that's happening in the industry, we, we look at design, we look at quality, but safety seems to seems to be forgotten about a little bit. And and so um, this yeah. is one aspect. It's where, not sexy. It's not sexy. And, and it. It, it, it's funny because, you know, it really resonates me when you say it's people that I know that get affected. You know, it hurts when that happens. And it also hurts when you are so passionate about construction, you see all these problems that are happening and safety is right there in front of you. There's so many low hanging fruit that we can improve upon, not just, you know, saving a scratch here or there, but saving lives. And it just seems to be so forgotten. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what safety is and yeah. what, what you're doing there. So, so the, the primary aim of this is to save lives, right? Um, and I think that there's, there's all sorts of other knock-on benefits. Uh, so, so there's this whole thing about how construction's productivity growth has been almost over the last 20 years and all these things. And we could solve some of those quite easily by just being safer, right? Being safer on site to show right. to, improve, to, to improve productivity. And by being safer, we can make sure that we finish our projects on time. So I think that safety has got a lot of benefits to some of the other issues that the industry is having as a whole. So safety, safety.ai was, um, was one of these things that I started where I'm trying to get people to interact with safety management systems in a much more intuitive way. And what I've realized and what I've seen over the projects that I've worked on and interacted with is that a lot of people are already turning to public messenger applications. Like uh, on our sites over here, almost any site you go on has got a WhatsApp group and, and right. it's got a WhatsApp group for safety and the contractors on there, the consultants on there, sometimes the clients on there. And when they're making observations or an incident happens, the WhatsApp group is the first thing to open up. People are taking pictures, people are writing notes. Now, most of the time, that then has to be transferred over into some sort of formal system, some sort of database mm-hmm. so that you can track these things and, and spot trends. And what sometimes is happening is, one, the worst, absolute worst thing is that it doesn't happen. So, so you're not getting the benefit right. of, of all of this information. Or 
is having to, uh, the people who are the most important are the safety officers or the safety practitioners on site. They're having to sit in front of a computer and type all of this stuff in, right? That is a That's ineffective right. use of these people's time. So what we thought is that why don't we take some of this new technology, um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and chatbots and and give people a chat interface where it guides them through starts improving the quality of these interactions and completes these forms and things like that in the administrative stuff in the background right it's it's it automating some of this process and it's no different to what people are doing at the moment in terms of talking to each other on a whatsapp group here they'd be talking to a chatbot and so it's evolved from there and so what we've built is a product now, which is actually is production ready. We've got a couple of pilots going out and things like that. And people are starting to give us really, really positive feedback. You know, it's like it's really intuitive to use. And, and what we want to do is, is evolve it in that once we start capturing the data, because it's come through the chatbot, it's inherently structured. It's really, really well structured. So once we get right. enough data, we can start applying artificial intelligence on the data itself, start spotting right. trends and things like that, and then push those back out to the people. Right to then hmm. say, look, uh, the bot can say, hey, look, I spotted this. You might want to do something about it and things like that. So yeah, we're at the very beginning of this journey, um, and it's exciting and and a lot of hard work. But yeah, I think that there's it's got massive legs, and and I'm really looking forward to seeing how it evolves. I'm 100 sure that the vision that we've got for it now won't be where it ends up being in a couple of years' time. Exactly the same way yeah. as my career when I started, and the vision right. I had for it isn't isn't what I'm doing now. I I see this being a very much a, a simile of my career. Well, it sounds very interesting and I wish you the best of luck there. It's obviously quite the problem to solve there. You know, how do we make safety engaging, fun maybe? How do we get people excited about this? Because if, if people are not excited, you know, they won't, they won't do it uh, at the exactly. end of the day. It sounds fun. I like the logo a lot. It looks like a, you know, a inviting logo to, to interact with. And, uh, you know, looking at you, I'm sure you'll get it there. Um, how is it? I'm wondering, how is it? working at such a large role in a company like JLL and also working with your startup at the same time. How's that experience? How do you manage your time between the two? How does that happen? It's tough. I'm not going to lie. And bit like, as well as then being a father and a husband and then all, all the other roles that come with it. Oh so yeah, there's that too. It, <laughs> <laughs> so so, so it's, it's tough managing the time. So I've got three other partners um, with me on the startup and then that makes a huge difference. You know, being, yeah. um, having really strong partners who you can completely rely upon to do what they say they're going to do when they're going to do it. Um, that makes a massive difference, I think. Um, so I'm able to rely on these guys to do the things that need to be done to keep the cogs the cogs turning and, and, and the whole machine moving forward. And then from the sort of balancing it from, from, my, from my day job with JLL, I think one of the other things that really attracted me to them is when I mentioned that I wanted to do this uh, before I moved over, it was one of the early conversations that I had. It, the, the whole conversation was spun on its head and it, it was basically like, um, yeah, why not? This is brilliant. Right? We want people to have this entrepreneurial spirit because the things the attitudes that they'll bring on the things that they'll learn from the entrepreneurial journey can be applied to the stuff that we're doing internally within JLL. Right. You know? And this was really And, and especially in construction where, you know, every project is so unique. Yep. You know, yep. And, and it's like you're starting, it's like you have a startup for every single project. <laughs> And I think some of those things have already borne out. So internally within JLL, we're trying to develop our own products and that. And through some of the learnings that I've had 
um, with my startup, I, I'm able to bring that experience and some of those lessons learned and say, look, like this is the, some of the things that we're going to encounter going forward. We might want to start thinking about them now and things like that. Mm. So I think that it's for, for that reason as well, it's been a great move to move over to JLL with, with that freshness of thinking, you know, that very forward thinking, which is actually very uncommon. Yeah. So we're getting toward the end of our uh, podcast. Uh, we like to ask a question to our guests, and that's uh, how would you like to see uh, construction 10 years from now? Not what you think it will look like, but how would you like to see it 10 years from now? I would, I would like to see it very different to what it is at the moment. I think that over, over the last maybe, I don't know, even if you go back, back a thousand years, right? And the way that we build roads and the way that we build some buildings, uh, 2000 years even, even when the Romans were building some of the stuff, I don't think it's, some of the stuff has changed very much. So in 10 years time, um, I, I think that I would have liked to have construction to have caught on to this wave of innovation, this wave of, of, of technological disruption that's happening in other industries and to comp- to do things completely differently. And I think that is applicable not only in the way that we build things, it should also be in the way that we design things. I fully expect us or I would really like us to be designing things more parametrically rather than prescriptively in the way that we do at the moment and then to build things much more uh, much more digitally whether that be utilizing robots or things like 3d printers or, or something like that I, I don't know but definitely different to the way that we're doing it at the moment i i want uh, the construction industry to value the people that build things much more than we do at the moment i don't think that we value the actual the guys that put the bits of construction together typically the the people that get the the accolades are the the star architects and and the engineers right. and things like that not not the guys that are actually making this thing bringing this thing to fruition Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We really do hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you think that it delivered value to you, please share it with a friend who will appreciate it as well. Thanks.